This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, boy, do I have an extra special guest, venture capitalist Bill Gurley of Benchmark. What a rock star. He, he's been just right at the forefront of everything that's been going on uh, in venture capital over the past 20 years. Grubhub, OpenTable, Zillow. He was one of the very first investors into Uber, was a board member there. Really just a fascinating career from a design engineer at Compaq to becoming an, a Wall Street analyst. Turns out he's the lead analyst on the Amazon IPO to eventually becoming a, a VC at, at Benchmark, uh, where really he just has tremendous insight into entrepreneurs and technology and to think about things like the network effect and what is this technology also um, parallel to and where can we see uh, scale and leverage and capital all come together in a way that, that is unique. Um, just really a, a fascinating, fascinating person, very forthcoming, um, including about things that were really challenging periods of his career that I would imagine wasn't a whole lot of fun. Uh, if you read the book, Super Pumped, about Uber, um, really, he's the only guy that comes through that, that whole book uh, with his reputation intact. He's really the only good guy in the book. And the book is an amazing, uh, amazing story about Uber, uh, which in and of itself is, is just madness. Um, so if you are at all remotely interested in venture capital investing, technology, direct listings, um, replacing IPOs, I think you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Benchmark's Bill Gurley. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Bill Gurley. He is a legendary venture capital investor at Benchmark, where he's been since 1999. Some of his better-known investments have included Grubhub, Nextdoor, OpenTable, Zillow, and of course, Uber. He is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Santa Fe Institute, and he is considered one of the most influential dealmakers in technology. In 2016, he was named TechCrunch's VC of the Year. Bill Gurley, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. Yeah, this is overdue. We were supposed to get together a couple of years ago, and then uh, events intervened. Let's start with your early career. You began as a design engineer at Compaq. What does a design engineer do, and what sort of lessons did you take away from that experience at Compaq? You know, the, the job I fell into at Compaq, um, which was super, super interesting for a person with a brain like mine, um, we, we were a bit of a like a fire squad that came in when there were problems. So when they were bringing new computers to market, they would pass them off to the test group, and the test group would take all the latest and greatest software. And back then it was like Banyan Vines <laughs> and running three com Ethernet adapters, a lot of stuff that doesn't exist anymore today. Um, but inevitably they would break and and someone had to figure out why. And the the people that are doing the hardware design work didn't have enough understanding of how the software worked to kind of reverse engineer the failure. And so we kind of lived in between these two groups. What was 
What was fun about it is that, you know, oftentimes they were holding up shipping until we could get our job done. So it was this kind of, they'd put us in a room with a bunch of pizzas and expect us to work like 18 hour days until we found the problem. But it was fun because it was, you know, short in scope. It'd usually be like one day to a week before we'd figure it out. And it felt important because everyone was kind of waiting on us. Um, And it was fun. And it, it, it was super interesting, I think, also for me, just because of the problem-solving nature of the whole thing. I don't even know if a group like that exists anymore. So when you're involved in both hardware and software, we're talking 30-plus years ago, how magical did the software look? Was it still all potential? Uh, you're dealing with both hardware and software. What, what intrigued you? Well, client-server was starting to happen already, and, and, and there were different ways. You know, I have no idea how they do this today because the clock speeds are so dramatic and faster. But um, there were different types of analysis tools that you could run either virtually in the background or, you know, and we'd plug this thing called an ICE, which was a Medusa head-like thing on top of the processor where you could measure every pin, and you'd watch the signals go by, and you'd, you'd try and reverse the software failure all the way down to where something was happening on the on the motherboard that was causing a race condition or this kind of thing. And there were always odd things like you could, you know, make it really cold and it, the failure would go away. And then you knew you had some type of analog rise time problem. But uh, but it was fun. I mean, you, you really had to understand how the system worked all the way through or you couldn't you couldn't pull that that down. You know, the the funny thing is, you know, when we were we were already running into situations where the equipment that you would put on it uh, to measure it would would mess with it. Um, and back then, you know, I think the last thing I worked on was a 4650. And I can't imagine how they do it today. Like, I just I mean, I know they do it, but I just can't imagine because the clock speed. We would have never imagined back then the clock speeds would be as fast as they are today. Yeah, Moore's law just keeps on compounding. So, so you um, you moved to Wall Street as a research analyst in the 1990s. What led you to cover tech stocks? Well, somewhere along the way, while I was uh, had become an engineer and was working at Compaq, um, I started trading stocks, and I can't remember exactly how I fell into it. Um, I'm sure. I, I, I have a vivid memory of reading uh, Peter Lynch's book. And I also remember uh, Prodigy. You remember Prodigy? Sure. <laughs> kind of a precursor to AOL with Sears. CompuServe, you Prodigy, a, absolutely. You could get a trading account on Prodigy. And so I was buying stocks. And one of the ones I bought, you know, if you read read that Peter Lynch book, was it One Up on Wall Street? Was that the name? Yep. Um, yep, Exactly. You know, he, he said, buy stocks of companies you love. Well, I was doing a ton of programming in Borland, uh, uh, Borland uh, Turbo Pascal, and I loved the Quattro spreadsheet, liked it way better than Lotus, and was using those tools every day. And so I bought, I bought the Borland stock on the IPO, like the day of the IPO. I don't think I got allocation. <laughs> be a good conversation for direct listings. I don't think I got allocation through Prodigy, but I bought it the day of the offering. Um, so, huh. so that kind of thing was already happening in my brain. Um, 
I ended up I ended up leaving Compact and going to business school before I transitioned into Wall Street. And I think when I got to business school and started really understanding, you know, different companies and reading about companies and and that fun that I was having, uh, thinking about stocks and stock prices. I when I when I really started reading, you know, magazines, Wall Street Journal, Fortune. Um, I noticed that these analysts were quoted a lot, uh, especially Goldman had this killer team uh, with Dan Benton, uh, uh, Rich Sherlin, you know, right. and uh, they they owned it. Like every like the top five tech analysts at Goldman were all all considered to be the axe, and um, their names would just come up and up and up. So, you know, and then I was getting a little more spirited and you'd read stories about people knocking on doors. So I spent a week in the summer of my, in between my two business school, just begging for meetings on Wall Street, <laughs> uh, including with, with Dan and, and Rick. And you end up at CS First Boston, where it turns out that you end up as the lead analyst for an IPO for a little company called Amazon. Tell us what that experience was like, and did anybody have any idea then what Amazon might become? Forget what it is. What was it even? Hey, um, the you skipped about four years, so which is so. Fine, what's in between? I, so I, it's kind of interesting because it involves someone I know. I know you you think quite highly of. So I um, ended up getting a job. I, I ended up getting turned down by every firm except for one, which was Credit Suisse First Boston. And the research director there was a guy named Al Jackson, who I still talk to today. Um, and, you know, I went to Texas. Uh, in my inter entering class, we went around the room and stayed wherever it was from, you know, Wharton, Harvard. Like there was, I was the only one that wasn't like those five schools. Right. And, you know, Al just felt like taking a bet on me. And I don't know where I'd be today if he hadn't have done that. I show up, and um, they were going to assign me passive components, which is some obscure tech category. Um, mm -hmm. And Charlie Wolf, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, I know Charlie was, very well. He covered Apple when nobody liked Apple. Yeah, so Charlie was the PC analyst. And yep. two weeks after I showed up, Charlie said he wanted to retire and teach more at Columbia. And I mean, to just talk about wild fortune. And so I went into my apartment and spent all weekend writing this kind of assessment of the PC industry and went in and begged Al for, for Charlie's job. And he gave it to me. That's amazing. Um, and then Charlie, you know, stayed on the payroll part time and became a mentor and helped me with all my work and kind of was my uh, shepherd and was incredible. And then, you know, the, the other part is just, couldn't be more fortunate. You know, my first weekend, I've become friends with the food analyst. You're talking about Michael Mobison, I assume. Correct. Correct. The sequence of fortunate events is so, like, mind-boggling. So I um, I get to know Mike. Mike hands me uh, a book called Valuation that McKinsey had written and another one by Stern Stewart, all about return on invested capital, um, which he's using in the food space. Um out of curiosity and because he's pushing me, I run the numbers for all the PC manufacturers. And it turns out Dell is crushing everyone on this metric that no one's using in the, in the 
analysis of that market. Huh. And it also turns out that they've got an option scandal problem and a laptop battery problem, and the stock's trading at six times earnings. And so <laughs> through through using that methodology that Michael taught me and spending a ton of time with Tom Meredith, who was the CFO of Dell at the time, um, you know, we went to a strong buy when everyone was, was had a sell rating, which was the only strong buy I ever did in my career. Um, and I think the stock went up a hundred X in the public market from there. Amazing. So, so, so now let's, let's fast forward to the Amazon IPO. You're the lead analyst. Tell us about that experience. Yeah. So I, in my third year as an analyst at, at CSFB, I was about to, I was about to jump ship and go to the buy side. I'd been spending a bunch of time with Capital Group, actually, who I think the world of, um, you know, still still keep in touch with people there all the way till today. And mm-hmm. Frank Quattrone called me out of the blue. And he said, I've heard a lot about you. We're leaving Morgan Stanley. We're going to start this boutique tech investment bank called DMG Technology Group. And you really want us to join and I really want you to join. And um, I called Roger McNamee because <laughs> um, I, I, I was looking for some advice, and Roger was a client of mine at CSFB. And he said, you got to meet with Frank. You have to meet with Frank. And so I met with Frank. He, he, he asked, what do you want to do long term? And I said, I'd love to be a venture capitalist. And he said, I'll tell you what, come work for me. I'll move you to Silicon Valley. I'll introduce you to every VC that I know. So that was a pretty good, uh, that was a pretty good offer. Um, when when I got together down, with Frank, we, yeah, well, Frank and I then started. He said, he said, what else? And I said, well, I don't really want to cover PCs anymore because they're gonna they're gonna merge with the big box group, and I'm gonna have to cover HP and DAC, and I that's boring. He goes, well, what do you want to cover? And I said, this internet thing's popping up. Let's do that. He said, fine. So. Um, this was the pre-Spitzer wall, so the bankers and the research analysts spent a lot more time together. But um, I had already, I believe, uh, reached out you know, to Bezos one way or another, just paying attention to what was happening with the Internet, um, and made a couple of trips up to Seattle uh, to speak with him. Um, got to know him pretty well. We're still close friends today, and he's a large investor in Benchmark. And... Um, and you know, we, it, 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 luckily we got to know him before it happened, but there ended up being a bake off and it was, it was, you know, more, I think Morgan Stanley was in before us and Goldman after us, the meetings were at the Kleiner building on Sand Hill and somehow we won the mandate. <laughs> I, I, uh, to this day, it's one of my favorite trivia questions. Who was lead left on the Amazon IPO? Cause <laughs> Not many people will be able to say Deutsche Morgan Grunfeld, but but there there is a photo of it on the internet if you do a search. I assume you fair, still have a book somewhere, right? Don't you have a, a, I do, a keepsake? I do, I do. I have the prospectus, and I, and I also my my assistant at the time, Juliet Wilson, who who was was really great. She had this idea that we would bind the pitch book, and she found a company in San Francisco that was open all night that would bind a book for you. The bankers thought we were nuts because they loved to put pages in at the last minute in these like three ring binders. 
but they agreed to it. And so like she drove to the city at like 2 a.m. And, and we, we used bound pitch books for the Amazon. And I still have a copy of that, which is kind of cool. That's quite amazing. How did you value companies back then when <laughs> there wasn't a lot of revenue, there certainly wasn't any profit, there were eyeballs, there were clicks. How do you put a valuation on, on a, a relatively young startup? You know, I, I um, got that opportunity to jump to venture only 13 months after I joined Frank, and I did. And so I was... I would. I had left the equity research business by the time stuff started going really crazy, um, mm-hmm. in the, in the, in '99, um, and so uh, I started thinking about it as a as an investor and less as a research analyst. But I didn't. I wasn't forced into that quandary. Um, I I wrote a blog post way back then though about proxy valuations, and I noted that. People like John Malone, you know, had been able to convince Wall Street to think about homes pass instead of, you know, a PE multiple and that mm-hmm. there's a value per home pass and we can grow homes pass. And there were, so there were other people at that time that had been successful at, at kind of changing the, the, on how you think about things. But of course, in 99, 2000, things just went super nutty. They may be super nutty again. Um, and, uh, and it, it, it can cause a lot of anxiety for someone who was brought up rooted in financial history. And, you know, someone who's, who felt like a study partner of Mike Mobison, like it's, it's hard when you see craziness. So, you're not an especially big fan of initial public offerings. What's the problem with traditional IPOs? There's a problem that's been inherent for a very long time, and then there's a problem that's gotten way worse in the past five years. The problem that's been around for a very long time, you know, uh, Bill Hambrick was pushing on this over 20 years ago. You know, he, he said it's an in- insider's game and it's rigged. And he was one of the insiders. You know, um, and Pierre at eBay got upset about it. Uh, Larry and Sergey got upset about it. You know, so I, I think it's and and NetSuite, you know, uh, uh, got upset about it. Uh, Allison was upset, and as a result, the team at, at NetSuite. And so, I think it's always important when this topic comes up to highlight that. There were plenty of other people in Silicon Valley that were ringing this bell before I was. Um, I'm just the latest person to pick up the baton. Um, there's two real problems uh, that have been exacerbated recently. One is they don't let everyone bid. So you're, you're, there's a very restricted set of people who get to decide if they, you know, get, if they want to buy stock in an offer. And it's it's not everybody. There's not even any oversight as to who gets let into that circle. And then the second thing is they don't use price. Uh, to, they, they don't use supply and demand to set the price and determine who gets the shares. They literally have humans saying, we think the price should be this, and we're going to give it to this many people. Um, right. It's no shock that that has resulted in mispricing. And now... There's 40 years 
of underpricing data. Professor uh, Jay Ritter at the uh, University of Florida has aggregated all this on his website. He keeps it up to date, so I just get to point at his stuff. Um, those numbers have gotten insane recently. So the previous two years were six and seven billion dollars of one day underpricing, and then 2020 was 35 billion. So, Bill, some people might say, on, at least on Wall Street, that that's not a bug; that's a feature. Oh, maybe for that client. You know, the, the, I, I do think that all of it makes sense when you realize that the key customer of the investment bank is the institutional uh, shareholder right. firm. Right. It's the Fidelities and T. Rose and Capital Groups. Um, that is the customer that's being served. And I guess that's fine to a certain extent, except the banker um, – Acts as if they're looking after your best interests. Also, there, there's no high dollar transaction that you'll do in your life, Barry, where you use the same agent as the counterpart. Right. right. It's the only one. There, there literally isn't. You wouldn't do that in M and A transaction. You don't. No. You don't do not. it when you sell a house. Um, you always get your own, you know, agent to look after your best interests. So it's bizarre how much trust there is um, when people go into that process. And I think that trust gets taken advantage of. When I was on Wall Street, um, there were these huge sales forces in every region. And when you did an IPO, there was variable compensation for people that could play shares. And even between the banks, there was this thing called jump ball economics, where your bank was encouraged to outperform the other bank. So they used to use this word distribution. I'm looking to get this offering out and you got to go sell it, right? The sales force at the two largest investment banks today is one-tenth the size it was back then. So they don't even have the people anymore. And what they've done is they now focus the majority of the IPO process on like the top 20 accounts. Um, So there's no effort anymore to push it out. It's just more of an effort to see what these people want. And they've settled in on an optimization function, which is truly remarkable that they get, that this actually passes muster. But they tell each and every CEO and CFO and, and board that comes to go public that their goal should be being 30 to 50x oversubscribed. Wow. That, that's amazing. And Supply and demand was understood three or 400 years ago. How you could sell the most important asset in your firm, which is your stock, um, into a process where you're being told that 30 to 50x oversubscribed is optimization, it's shocking. It's literally shocking to me. So let's talk about an alternative like direct listings how do they work, and what are their advantages versus a traditional IPO? Yeah, so like 40 years ago, people built algorithms into exchanges that allowed you to match supply and demand to determine price. And every single stock these days, every day when it opens, goes through that process, right? Every morning, you know, you got to start trading a stock. How do you determine which price? Where's the first trade happen? Um and it's all just a simple matter of matching supply and demand. The, the most uh, highly used algorithm is called price time, which is if, if you put in a bid at the price that they eventually open at, 
or if you put a bit a penny above the price they open at, you automatically get filled if you're at that price, whoever had the order in first. So that's the price and the time. Um, that's exactly how every stock's opened every day on both the NASDAQ and the NYSE. And here's the best part. That same technique is used the day after a hand-allocated IPO. So every company that does an IPO does a direct listing the, the very next morning, except the only people allowed to sell an IPO are the ones that you gave the stock to the night before, which is also perverse. Um, but the technique, that I think the most elegant thing about the direct listing is it uses the systems that are already in place. And so... If you talk to the guys at Citadel that have done all four of the high-profile direct listings, um, they they actually, you know, will tell you, yeah, this is just like how we open every other stock, or just like we open a stock after an IPO the day before. Um, and now I, I had a front-row seat on Asana because we were an investor there, but um, they just start announcing a range. People tighten up their their bids and their offers, and eventually a block trades, and then you're off and going. But it's completely blind, so no one gets an allocation because of who they are or their, or their brand. And it's all tied to that algorithm of price and time. And so on. Uh, just to prove, and, and it, here's another great thing, because it's in the network already, because they're using these systems at the exchanges, it's connected to all brokerages. So for a direct listing, you want to go on Robinhood, you want to go on Schwab, put in an order for one share at 14 bucks. If that's above the opening price, you get filled. Like, the, and that's that's the the, the the I said there are two parts. You know, using algorithms, supply and demand to set price, but also being available to every shareholder on the exchange. And you get both of those, which is way better. It's just it's like it. it to me, the the the, <laughs> the onus on why we would do something should be on why would we ever have someone sitting there you know, hand allocating and hand determining price makes no sense. We op- we sell every bond in this country, you know, with this type of system. Um, and, it's, and, I, and I hope one day that that's how every one of these IPOs will work. So, Bill, how does a direct listing compare to, say, the way Google went public with that sort of reverse Dutch auction? Well, I, I take three things about that. So, so first of all, um, because they were trying to do it in a in a innovative manner, it was bespoke. And so um, I think Morgan Stanley hired like 200 engineers to build the system, and it was a one-off. That's different from what I just described with direct listings, where they're using this process and systems that have been in place for 20, 30 years at the NASDAQ mm-hmm. and the NYC. So obviously one of those is better than the other. Um for any retail investor that wanted to do Google, they had to go open an account, I think, at Hamburg and Quist or something. Like, it wasn't tied to the open exchange the way this is. So you didn't have all of that. And then, and then lastly, you know, you, 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 because it was the first one, your auction participants just didn't have a lot of experience. And right. there's this great legendary story. Uh, that Bill Miller was trying to figure out how much he should put in on the Google auction. And he, he apparently hired a bunch of auction specialists to come brief his team on how to think about this. And somewhere like the second day, someone realized that all the auction theorists were starting by saying 
assuming you have participants who are experienced. Like all the auction theory is based on people having experience. And he then realized everyone's going to be inexperienced here. They're going to be conservative. They're going to underbid. And he put in a huge order. <laughs> and got filled. It's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> he did. So He did. He got filled. So there was no, mm-hmm. no experience and, and, and a much a much less less uh, efficient tech stack relative to what we have today. So when you do a direct listing, do you still have the rest of the trappings? Is there still a road show? Do you need to sort of show your wares to bankers or do you just, you know, list and go public? So there's a misunderstanding on this point and, and it was partially driven by there was a there are a group of naysayers who said you could only do a direct listing if you're an extremely well-known brand, um, which I think was 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 quite frankly BS from the beginning. But um, I think you know, with Asana having a successful direct listing, uh, it's, it's not a not a household brand. I think we've kind of blown that up. Um, but the other thing was they thought you, that the in-person roadshow was was tremendously important, and you could only do that with an IPO. Well, of course. Uh, with COVID, that's been proven wrong because every IPO now is is virtual. But but the, the the bigger point I would make is the amount of information you can share is actually a superset of an IPO. So you you have way more opportunity to educate. Um, all four direct listings have used the equivalent of an investor day. So like four to eight hours of information dissemination from different parts of the company, which you would never get on a traditional IPO. Um, and and Slack then decided that in addition to the investor day, they wanted to do the standard roadshow. And that was that was available. And, and so they did both. So they were able actually to do even more. Daniel Eck, interestingly, at, at Spotify, felt strongly that he felt, and this tied to open access, he wanted every investor to have the exact same information. And so he was uncomfortable doing the roadshow because he wanted the retail investors to not be at a disadvantage to the institutional investors. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. Are there any legal or regulatory impediments to direct listings becoming more popular? Or is it just simply there's an entrenched IPO process and it's what so many people are used to? Yeah. I think there's a lot of that entrenched thing. You know, when you take your company public, it, it, for many CEOs and founders and CFOs, they may do it once in their lifetime. And so it carries this kind of special, uh, like, importance. And I think that weight of importance causes conservatism because people are like, oh, my God, I can't screw this up. And I think Bankers take advantage of that. I, I say often an IPO is like a grand Southern wedding, right? Where they they tell you, you know, oh, no cost is too much, right? You got to have every bell and whistle here. You want this to be right. spectacular, um, and that seduction, I think, plays a part of the whole thing. Um, it's interesting to me when you look at the thread that goes through the type of entrepreneur who really stands up and says, you know, I need to do this because this is what's right. And Larry and Sergey did that. Daniel Ack did that. You know, Toby at, Spotify, at Shopify said, man, if I ever had another chance, I would definitely do a direct listing. And 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 I, I have to believe, I, 
I would bet a lot, not a lot of money that Bezos would do a direct listing if he were coming out today. Um, huh. I just think, you know, the, I think it takes a certain amount of chutzpah and a certain amount of conviction um, to kind of go against the grain. But the more of these that are under our belt, we've got Roblox and Coinbase coming soon. I think I think the more momentum there'll be. Obviously, there's one piece that 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 is missing still today, but there's a lot of progress on is adding primary capital to it. Stacy Cunningham, who runs the NYSE, um, really really pushed hard on making this happen. And Commissioner Clayton, in his last act, I think two days before he stepped away as chairman of the SEC, pushed that through. And so it's now legal to do it. And they're going to, you know, it'll take a few companies to be the first one through the door. Um, I don't think there's any technical issues with adding primary capital. Huh, quite fascinating. So, Bill, let's talk a little bit about Uber. You were one of the earliest investors. You, you participated in the A rounds. What did you see at that stage that got you so excited? We, we had made this investment in Open Table. And the. It felt like a flyer at the time. I think it's, I don't think it looks that way now, but we we made this bet that if you could get this flywheel moving, that connecting all the world's restaurants would create a very special um, experience for the consumer. And you know, prior to Open Table, you couldn't say, "Oh, I, I need a table for six and would love Chinese in San Francisco on Saturday." And then immediately get a response like that was an impossibility. And so my partnership and I started asking, what other industries could you put this network layer on and and have an aha experience for the consumer? And the one the one that intrigued me um, just in terms of like fundamental research and thinking was was cars. I just thought if you put a network on cars, there's so much inefficiency. Um, especially around black cars, you know, you would, you'd spend as much on a business trip. You fly to Chicago for a day. You'd spend as much on the black car that, that you rode around in all day as you did the flight. Um, and most of the time they were just sitting there and then God forbid you come out and you can't find them or you're calling them. Like it's just all this waste. And, um, so I just started proactively meeting with companies and I met with probably three or four companies that have built this network layer on top of taxes um, and spent a lot of time with those companies. It struck me the more I learned about it that most taxis were oligopolies in, right. in cities. Um, they were highly regulated, so you couldn't mess around with price, which isn't optimal for a, for a marketplace. Um, there, were, there was all kind of... of ugliness around people that have tried to sell technology to them before they were installing uh devices in the dash and stuff and so there's just a lot that that kind of didn't look great the more i dug into that and so i kind of came back to the partnership and just said hey if you ever see anyone doing this around black cars instead of taxis let's let's talk to them and and that's what happened garrett and travis and ryan graves you know, started doing this thing right in our backyard that was exactly what we were talking about internally. And so we smothered. We actually met <laughs> with them before the seed round. 
Um, wow. And my partners couldn't quite get there. But six months later, we led the eight. So, and and uh, no regrets. <laughs> to say the least. So, so you were not only a very engaged board member at Uber, you were Travis's, Travis Kalanick, who is the CEO, you, you've been described as his consigliere. How difficult of a role does that put you in where you're both an investor into the company, but a cheerleader into one of the founders and the CEO? You know, I think, I think that that is a role we play as early stage uh, venture capitalists that we always take a board seat of benchmark. I think that's a role we play in every company. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it is the most nuanced, difficult part of the job uh, to be simultaneously a friend and partner who's trying to help develop and mentor a founder and, and, and shepherd them in their, in their journey. Um, hopefully, you know, above and beyond and past, you know, yourself. Uh, into into the public markets, um, and simultaneously have a fiduciary duty job as a board member right. to look after the interest of shareholders, and it's tough. Um, I you know a lot of there's lots of different stories with a lot of different founders, a lot of different investors, and that have been through that. Um, in this particular case, you know it's well known that became that got that got increasingly difficult. Um, and and I would say you know that's non optimal. Like like in 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 the uh, in the perfect scenario, you know, you have something like like Bezos at Amazon, where the founder is able to to rise and scale and and do extremely well um, into the public markets and beyond. Uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. So I've been a, a, a user of Uber for God knows how long. Um, and I've watched the rise and fall and rise again, and that led me to read the book Super Pump, The Battle for Uber. You're the only guy in the whole book who comes out with your reputation intact. Everybody else in the book is, I, I don't know any of these people, so I can't say how accurate it is, but everybody comes across as, you know, either a jerk or an egotist or just so sharp-elbowed you seem to be the only mensch, the the only person of character in the book. Have you read it? And and if you have, is it remotely accurate? I have not read it, Barry. My wife read it and and echoed what you just said. Um, I chose not to read it just because I didn't necessarily want to live it again. Um, right. But that's probably not fair to the author. I, I probably should at some point. So I don't know. I can't speak to that because I, I haven't read it in detail. Understandable. So ultimately, Travis gets forced out, and the next day you resign from the board, and, and you show your support for him, stating there'll be many pages in the history books devoted to at Travis right. K, that's his uh, Twitter handle. Very few entrepreneurs have had such a lasting impact on the world. That was a good couple of years ago. With the passage of time, uh, do you feel... Uh, the same. How, how has your perspective changed since since you stepped down in 2017? Yeah, I mean, there, there. Travis had, and probably still does, has qualities that are particularly unique. He is really, really, really bright. Um, he is tireless. Like, like he will outwork you. Um, I think at one point in time, you know, I said I, I'd I'd be afraid of having 
and his money in it and a company that he's competing with just because I doubt you're going to work as hard as he is. So a combination of, of intelligence and, and remarkably hard worker. Um, and I also think because, and this is an interesting thing to look out for as a venture capitalist, because his first two companies didn't have huge success, when he realized he had product market fit, I think he leaned into it with a, with a, with an amount of of recognition of how special that is. You know, I think you know. So for better or for worse, some people get started on companies that just aren't as good as other companies. Um, and you know the famous saying, like you know, Buffett, when a bad business meets a good management team, it's the business who comes out with its reputation intact. Um, and I really think Travis knew that this was special. And so he went after it. A great recruiter was able to bring in a lot of great people. Um, fearless, like, like he launched the business in China when every, every single founder in the, um, in the U S has been told to give up on China and was able to parlay it into a, you know, a pretty big ownership position in DD, which Uber still has today. So a lot of amazing quality. So the challenging question is where did it go off the tracks? I mean, he clearly built a behemoth um, and arguably Uber is going to be around and going to influence transportation and food delivery and self-driving cars and go down the list for a long time, where did it go off the rails? You know, like I said earlier, I think I think if uh, if a venture capitalist is doing their best work, you know, this doesn't happen, right? Like you're able to help shepherd and mentor um, the founders so that they can can rise to the occasion and and scale alongside the company. Um, a lot of a lot of VCs had a very special weapon over the years. A gentleman named Bill Campbell that you may have heard about from time sure. to time, who was known as the legendary coach of Silicon Valley. You know, when he, he you know, he spent time with Bezos early on, not a lot, but a, a year or two. Um, he spent an immense amount of time with, with uh, Steve Jobs, and he spent an immense amount of time with Larry and Sergey. Most people don't know this, but he was still running the uh, management team meeting at Google 10 years after they were public. Um and so, you know, he unfortunately passed. I think, I think if he also, you know, I think if we had had the opportunity to introduce him to Travis, he might have been super helpful in that way. I don't know. Um, it, it, it's those kind of things I think about in, in retrospect. Um, everything got so big so fast and the money got so big so fast that it, I think it can impact, um, I think it can impact perspective that people have. Um, and, uh, and I think it That's just got enough. away from us at one point that year, you know, we were losing market share pretty dramatically and, you know, the marketing department had brand surveys, you know, that were in a free fall. We had, um, five or six investigations that were underway. Uh, I was on special committee conference calls, you know, every week. And it, you know, it looked like the the fate of the company was at stake. And, and, and I, you know, in, in 
after that, some of some of the most uh, touching moments. You know, I've I've been out in a restaurant in San Francisco where a random employee will come to me and say, "Hey, thank you, thank you for what you guys did. You know, you helped save the company." And so while I I would simultaneously say I wish I could have done a better job so that we were never in that place. You know, second to that, I think the work that we did was, you know, well, in retrospect, I, I look back on as one of the hardest things I've ever done, but something I'm actually quite proud of because of the number of constituents, you know, shareholders, employees, um, drivers that, that that were impacted by by ensuring the company was successful. That seems pretty reasonable. Let's talk a little bit about the state of venture investing today. The NASDAQ was getting shellacked up until Tuesday last week where it popped 500 points, over 4%. How do you look at the era we're in today relative to when you were coming up in the 90s and that entire dot-com implosion? Yeah, the the dot-com boom, um, you know, it was super interesting to have that at the very beginning of my venture career because I saw both the mania and then the correction, you know, really before I ever got off the ground, you know, I was doing early stage investing. So the companies I had backed in that window were pretty small, Um, but I watched it all. And, you know, as someone who's a student of financial history, I've read all the tulip books, you know, (laughs) I've read all about these types of things and they're known like they're known when the world gets more speculative uh, that happens from time to time. In in the in the dot com boom, we had a lot of companies going public with like a million dollars of quarterly revenue. Um, so it was different. There was like any company could go public, but they were all these little bitty tiny companies. Today um, is quite different in that um, this 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 market that's become speculative is has arisen on the back end of. What do you want, you know, because this goes back, including like Uber and like and the Vision Fund. It's on the back of like six or years of massive amounts of capital availability. And so it's not uncommon for the amount of capital a company has raised before they go public to be in the 500 million to a billion range now across a wide variety of companies. And so. And the companies that are coming public, even though they're not profitable, which we could talk about, most of them have pretty significant revenue run rates, pre-spec world. (laughs) Bill, what do you think is more important, having a strong revenue ramp for an early company or profitability? Yeah, so so look, I'm about to say something that I think is pretty obvious to people that have been around investing for a long time. So the most interesting thing about this past five years has been – the near zero interest rate environment. That's probably sure. a result of every country in the around around the globe deciding it's okay to print money, uh, you know. And so there's no way for money to there's no interest rates anywhere. And you know when you talk to whether it's someone like Buffett or Druckenmiller or or Howard Marks, these people that follow macro way more than any venture capitalist would. They know that when interest rates go to near zero, speculation abounds. Uh, people are looking for a home for their money. And I even asked the question you just asked me of Mike Mobison. I said, if interest rates go to zero based on all your valuation work, 
what matters more, growth or profitability? He said growth unquestionably. Yeah, no, I just because I think you're he's not right. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing, you know. Um the the these companies that are coming public, almost no one cares whether their their core profitability exists. But if they're growing north of fifty percent, they love that. Um when you combine that with the money that's out there, it leads to pretty manic discussions, you know, within a boardroom because the right answer, at least in the short run, might be to increase that burn rate to really high levels. Um, certainly unprecedented in the history of American business and push the gas. Right. And uh, it, 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 it makes for a wild ride. <laughs> To say the least. So the froth sounds like it's similar to the 90s, but the underlying conditions of 0% interest rate, lots of capital, but also lots of companies with big revenue and, and taking market share or just developing brand new markets, that seems a little more advanced, a little more sophisticated than what was being thrown up against the wall in the 90s. Probably, and then there's this there's this other th esoteric corner of the whole thing that's super interesting, which is um, once people get comfortable using capital as a weapon, all of a sudden the private companies are the ones that are being provocateurs with more money against the public incumbents. And no one would have ever imagined that 20 years ago, but I think Amazon did it to Walmart, and Everyone made fun of them the whole way up. You can just right. you can just imagine yourself being in the Walmart boardroom for those twenty years, and how much dismissiveness there was, probably about Amazon's lack of profitability, right? And because Bezos won over Wall Street, he was given a green light to spend and lose money while Walmart's being held to a PE or EBITDA multiple. And that's got to be super frustrating. Um, I think, I think uh, you know, Netflix did it also, right? Where everyone's sitting there going, but you don't make money, but you don't make money. And Reed got Wall Street to believe in what he was doing, which I think is a critical part of this, um, and then was allowed to lose way more money than any of the production companies that he was ultimately competing with. Um, and took massive share. And so now that, that, that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have been trained that that's a game you can go play, it's being done on a massive scale. I mean, you look at something like, what's the, uh, the India-based hotel company, Oyo? Like, yes. they're just building hotels. <laughs> like, they're literally building hotels with venture dollars. Um, huh. It's got to be immensely frustrating to someone that's competing with them. Well, you know, when, when you look at Amazon, I remember the very first investor letter that Jeff Bezos penned. And in it, he said, hey, we're not going to be profitable for 20 years. We're going to build this out and take market share. And we hope our investors are patient with us. And he was pretty true to his word. I mean, but for Amazon Web Services, he could have gone a full 20 years without showing any profit. Yeah, there's one thing about that letter I'd love to, to make a point about, just in case there's any entrepreneur that's ever going to write another one of those letters. Bezos came from Wall Street. 
you know? Right. He understood shareholders. And I think that letter, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he says, to our share owners. Or, like, that's the intro. And he talks to the shareholder in an immensely respectful way in their language and is telling them how they will have a synergistic relationship. Ever since that Bezos letter, a ton of of uh, uh, spirited founders ha- think that what he was saying was, I'm going to do it my way. And he, there was an element of that, but it was in this respectful tone of, of empathy to the shareholder. Since then, a lot of these guys just write, I'm going to do whatever I want, and if you don't like it, you can shove it, basically. And that's not what he did. So I think that's interesting how that's evolved. To say the very least. So, so we were talking the way, about the du- on this capital as a weapon thing. I think one really interesting thing to watch in the next five years is going to be the consumer banking industry in the U.S. So there are probably six different intensely um, capitalized companies that are new age banks. You know, from SoFi to Wealthfront to you know a firm which went out um, and Coinbase and Robin Hood, and and they're doing things that I don't think. There's one of them called Chime. So Chime, if you take them your direct deposit with your check, you know your earnings uh-huh. check from your work, they give you the cash two days early. Do you think Wells Fargo board would ever tell their management team, "Yeah, we should do that too"? <laughs> I don't think they'll ever consider it. this hyper. You know, using capital as a weapon in a hyper-aggressive way is coming to to consumer banking. Like, it's already here, and I think it's going to be super interesting to watch the incumbents over the next three or four years. So no doubt that finance is, is going to go through some changes. You've written about the role tech could play in transforming healthcare. Tell us a little bit about that sector and what can technology do? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately just because I've, I've been running <laughs> some numbers on the PCR testing in, in the U.S., which are mind-numbing. Um, we, we have a massive problem in the U.S. healthcare system, just massive, that is almost entirely um, tied to regulatory capture. And there's another big, big problem which is the employer just shouldn't be involved at all. Um, in all of the G20, we're the only country where the employer pays for health care. And it, it just obfuscates everything. Um, there's also, like, like, the person that's paying isn't present at the time of the transaction. No one knows the price until after the transaction's already done. Um, and then they fight about it. I mean, it's just, it couldn't be more perverse. And... I think we're going from like 17 to 18 to towards 20% of GDP. And other countries aren't like that. I mean, there are plenty of countries with very similar health profiles that are half that or, or even less. And so I'd like to believe technology can be a part of that. I'm, I think what Doug Hirsch has done at GoodRx is interesting. Um, but it may require legislation also. Um, Trump was pushing on some price transparency stuff that I thought was interesting. I think most favored nations with drug manufacturers, like 
you shouldn't. <laughs> I think that's an okay rule, right? You can't sell a drug for for ten cents in Canada and and two fifty here. Like, why not? That sounds realistic to me. Like, there, but but it's hard because um, of the capture. You know, there's so much money involved, and there's all these rules. The rules are written by the incumbents. HIPAA protects the incumbents, not not the consumer. Like, and there and there's 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 20 versions of HIPAA. I mean, it, it's it's very very messy. You know, it's funny you you mentioned why are the um, employers involved when you look at the first CARES Act, rather than sending money directly to small businesses or directly to employees. They put the companies in the middle. They gave companies loans and said, hey, we'll lend you money to cover salaries if these people continue to work. You know, it, it, there's a history, there's a long history of not wanting to appear socialist and send checks to people. So we pretend by putting businesses in the middle. But, you know, ultimately money from the government ends up being directed to people and whether you want to put a business in between or not, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, there's just no reason why anybody who's running a business has to also be running a small medical practice on the side. It doesn't make any sense. They hate it. They hate it. They're, they're no good at it, and they hate it. And it, it's, it's ridiculous. But, but all the obfuscation makes it easier for the people that are in the system and so no one, you know, no one's going to complain about it at a carrier or at a healthcare provider. Um, I assume this was the motivation that got Amazon and J.P. Morgan and who I forget who else was in that thing um, off the ground. But Berkshire it looks Hathaway. like that yeah. looks like that lost momentum too, right? It it yeah. is a you know it would it, it, if you consider me tilting against direct listings for for a couple of years had any impact whatsoever. I imagine it's a hundred X harder push <laughs> to yeah. tilt against the system. And I'm sure plenty of people have, but, but it's hard. Yeah, for sure. So we were talking about the dot-com implosion early in your career. Fast forward a few years to the great financial crisis. You end up writing a very prescient letter to the companies Benchmark had invested in Basically, how to survive the Great Depression, too, without firing everybody, basically saying there are risks, but there are also lots of opportunities. Tell us a little bit about your thinking when you sent that email out to all of your, uh, your companies. Yeah, and I think at the exact same time Sequoia had circulated that deck, uh, what was it, Good Times, whatever, go, I forget what it was. Um, look, I... I I think because I've studied the history of finance so much, I have a great deal of respect for making hard decisions, for focus on profitability, um, for being good stewards of capital. And emotionally, I deal way better with scenarios like that than when things are, are a mania and popping. Because the conversations that you're having with someone are quick. Um, people have to make very smart decisions, very fast. Um, really good entrepreneurs really thrive in moments like that. And you see people really rise to the occasion. 
in in a world in a world that's bubbly, you know, the things that are rewarded are being more speculative. And the very right answer may be to take on excessive amounts of risk that that is just not as intuitive to me. And so um I have no trouble kind of delivering that message at that moment in time and and I I take immense pride in seeing uh founders or a company survive, you know, a time period like that. Some a handful of our companies this past March, you know, had to live through something like that because, you know, if you were focused on certain industries, COVID just wiped them out. Like your revenue went away. And how you scramble, you know, is is hard. It's but but it's super rewarding. So I know you are stepping back a bit from benchmark. You're not participating in the next fund they're raising. What are you uh, going to do now? What are the plans looking forward? You know, I don't know yet, Barry. I've been spending a lot of time talking to a lot of people who've kind of done V2 of themselves. Um, I'm 53, so I, I feel like I've got a lot of energy left. Um, I love entrepreneurism. I love investing. I uh, have a great deal of respect for for it. Um, love talking to founders, executives, investors, and I'm trying to figure that out. I still sit on 10 boards and I have a lot of, of work to do at Benchmark. I'm going to see all of those through. Um, but I'm, I'm, still in the, I'm still in the learning phase of what's next. Huh, quite fascinating. If you have so, any good ideas, let me know. Well, if you're looking for a side gig in New York, it, there's always a desk in my office for you. <laughs> I don't know if you want to give up the nice weather out there. So, so let's <laughs> jump to our, uh, our favorite uh, questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or podcast you're listening to. What, what's keeping you entertained during lockdown? Yeah, you know, I I don't know if I have anything particularly unique. I I went through Queen's Gambit in a couple of days, and the looping thing's pretty good. Um, I, I I probably, if people are thinking about this, I'd go back to an an old one that I just adore. In case because I don't think everyone's watched this, but Justified has some of the best writing uh, that I've ever seen. It's just fantastic. Hmm. Quite interesting. You had hinted at some of your mentors, but let's give everybody their due. Who helped shape your career, both on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley? Yeah, so I think I mentioned them all, but Charlie Wolf and Mike Mobison at, at CSFB unquestionably had a huge, massive impact on my career direction. And then obviously Frank Quattrone bringing me out to the Valley and, and getting to know Bezos early on. I'd say all those things. Uh, and then the entire... The entire founding team at Benchmark that brought me on because I wasn't a founder um, and taught me everything they knew. So super fortunate to have lots of different mentors. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? My favorite book of all time is a book called Complexity about the rise of the Santa Fe Institute, where I'm now fortunate enough to serve on the board. Um, It's really an analysis of multivariable nonlinear systems and how they behave, and that includes things like stock market or weather, pandemics, um, and a lot of the tools that we think are scientific, like linear interpolation, actually don't work very well in these chaotic systems. And I just, it, it, it the, the, one of the early people there um, was the first, Brian Arthur was the first to write about network effects, you know, 
uh, back in the early 90s, and that had a big impact. So anyway, that's my favorite book, Complexity, Mitchell Waldrop. Um, right now, believe it or not, I finally, during COVID, decided to attempt the uh, Cairo books on Lyndon Johnson. Um, I am, I am three quarters through the first one, <laughs> but if you know, if you know the books, they're like 4,000 page books. Right. The giant. Um, and there's a dozen so, of them, it seems. And, and, and all the journalists I've met my entire life, you know, say you have to read this, you have to read this, you have to read this. So I finally, I finally took it on. So if I haven't read complexity, but if that floats your boat, I thought James Glick's Chaos did a really nice job explaining what's behind chaos theory. They came out at about the same time. They were oh, really those two books. Yeah, those two books are are almost like peers of one another. Um, huh. I found the applicability of what was discussed in complexity, you know, more realistic for me as an investor. Uh, and by the way, that putting... book, you know, was something that Mobison read at the time and, and, and Bill Miller read at the time. Bill Miller is like the chair emeritus there now, and Mike's the chair at Santa Fe. And so it's been fun to get to know them and discuss those topics and then get in deeper at the program. Quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent graduate who is interested in a career in either entrepreneurship or technology or venture capital investing? Yeah, so so it turns out, from my point of view, that venture capital is achievable for young people, even though most people would tell you it's impossible. Um, I think the odds are low of breaking in because the supply and demand just don't, doesn't really yield itself. There's not... There's not spaces relative to the number of people who want in. Um, but I think it's an area that bends to youth and bends to hustle. And so my, my advice would be um, take a bet on a very narrow sector. Um, hope you're right, but then immerse yourself in it. And there's no way the generalist, your capitalist, is going to be able to compete with you because you're going to know more about said subject matter. You know, something popular today like NFTs or, or you know, VR. Like, you could easily be the smartest. You could be smarter than every venture capitalist on VR if you immersed yourself for six months. You just would. Now, you got to get it right. I mean, I guess that's the downside. But, <laughs> but it, it yields to hustle and it yields to focus. And so those would be the two things I would, I would recommend. Hmm, really interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of venture capital and technology today that you wish you knew when you were starting out at Benchmark back in 1999? This is a really hard question. Um, and the reason it's really hard is because the, all of my initial answers that I want to give you, Barry, really violate the premise of the question, because I could say, well, I should have invested in Google, right? Or, you know, hold Amazon forever. But, but those things are just hindsight bias. <laughs> like, right, like right. They're not, they're not. I was going to say, don't, don't make me call Mike Mobison on you. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like that. So I, <laughs> I, my answer, which, which I guess will be confirming of, 
of probably every guest you've had on and, and makes it not that original because I've heard many other great investors say this is just the power of compounding for some of these platforms um, is so, so huge that, you know, if you invest in an Amazon or whatever, like the hardest thing to possibly do is just close your eyes and forget it. <laughs> and the only thing analysis is going to cause you to do is sell the stock. You know, you're not going to run analysis, you know, for the 14th time and go, hmm, I should keep holding. Like, And that is so hard, so, so hard um, to implement. Easy to say, very hard to implement. Yeah, that's a fascinating answer. You know, the the problem with conceptualizing compounds is that it takes place over years and decades and, and humans live in seconds and minutes and it's so challenging to conceptualize that exponential leap. There's no doubt. Bill, thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate this. We have been speaking with Bill Gurley. He is a venture capitalist at Benchmark. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 400 or so we've done over the past seven plus years, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put these conversations together each week. Reggie Brazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>